You ready to get started today? All right. We are going to be looking uh, into the Word here in the Gospel of Luke. If you want to turn there, that would be great. We can get started. Of course, uh, today we're celebrating Easter, and uh, the message today is entitled, See God Clearly Again. And uh, as we all know, it all helps to see things in clear focus. Um, Back before we all had... um, Tell uh, the the um, cameras that occasionally work as phones. Um, you actually had to focus the lens, but now it just does it automatically. And we all remember, if you're of a certain age, I guess, uh, what it's like to get the picture back and it's like blurry. And you're like, nah. So it helps to be focused and refocused and always seeing more clearly. And as we go through life, we need to see things clearly. And if there's ever a subject where we need to have clarity, it's with God. And so today we're going to talk about see God clearly again. And so in order for us to get our lives into focus and really see God for who he really is, we've got to ask some really honest questions and get some really honest answers. That's the key. That's very important. Well, let's tell a joke about that, right? We've got to start off with a joke. Okay? So there was a, uh, a young girl, and she had a very rich grandfather, and so she's trying to figure out, how did he get to be so rich? He, she's asking other family members, how did granddad get to be so rich? And she just felt like she wasn't really getting straight answers. So she asked her grandfather, can I go to work with you one day? And he goes, yes, that'd be great. So they arranged the date. She goes to work with her grandfather. He takes her up into his office. Wow, what an office. I mean, huge, elaborate, expensive. Everything is just immaculate. It's just an awesome office of a very rich man. And she says, listen, granddad, I I don't know how you got all this money. But I've been asking people, and I don't think I've gotten the straight answer. Can you tell me, how did you get all this money? She said, he said, sure, I'll tell you, no problem. So he said, listen, it started when I was very young. He said, I, I didn't have anything but one penny. It's all the money I had. With that penny, I bought a pencil. And I sharpened that pencil, and I sold it for two pennies. So I bought two pencils and sharpened both of them. And then I had four pennies. He said, I just kept doing that over and over and over again until I had $128. And that's the year that your great aunt died and left me $10 million. (laughs) Didn't see that coming, did you? You know? You're in Luke uh, chapter number 24. Let's begin reading in verse number 13. You've got Bibles, tablets, phones. Many of the verses we're going to look at today will be up here for you, but we're going to read here in Luke 24. Now, this is Resurrection Day. What we're getting ready to read is the afternoon of Easter. When Christ rose from the dead early in the morning, this event happens in the afternoon. It's about two disciples Not one of the 12, but two disciples, people who are followers of Christ, and they are leaving Jerusalem on the way to a place called Emmaus. It's about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they have an encounter, and let's read about it. We're in Luke 24, verse 13. Now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus and about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. 
And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, and they were kept from recognizing him. And he asked them, what are you discussing as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus said, What things? Now, can we just stop for a moment? That's two of the most hilarious verses in the entire Bible. You know, they're, they're walking along going, hey, man, what, what just happened? What, this is weird. Jesus kind of veers into their lane and travels with them and goes, hey, man, what are you all talking about? And they're like, you don't know? Now, I don't know if Jesus did this or not, but he said, you know, what things? I kind of think he had a smirk on his face. He's like, hey, man, did something happen in Jerusalem? What's going on there, you know? I, I think God has a sense of humor. I think that's what he did. You don't have to believe that. But that is just hilarious. He's the only one that really knew, but he was baiting them to bring them into greater focus. Well, let's keep reading. So now we're at verse number 19. He says, hey, what are you talking about? What things? And they answered about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. Now look at verse 21 real clearly. He says, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Three words, hoped, the one, and redeem. It goes on, and what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they did not find his body. They came and told us about what they had seen, a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. And he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. They were looking for a Messiah. They had their hope that Jesus was the Messiah and that he was going to redeem Israel. And yet now they're confused and they're trying to figure it out. The Bible says they stood still and their hearts were downcast. Their faces were looking down. They were so upset because they did not understand what Jesus had done and what he was going to do. These disciples had heard Jesus. They had heard him teach. They had seen his miracles, maybe even been sent out with the 70 or the 120, possibly. They had participated in ministry with Jesus. They had seen him, heard him. They'd seen the miracles. They'd seen him cast out demons. And yet all of that changed with the crucifixion. They were confused because they didn't understand all that the Old Testament and the prophets had said about Jesus. They, like you and me, probably were focusing on the feel-good verses. You know, I call them the fluffy verses. 
you know, the verses that said, you're going to be blessed. It's always going to be awesome and great and wonderful. And your life is going to be amazing. You're going to have peace and joy and love. And everybody's going to like you. Those verses. We have a tendency to gravitate toward those, don't we? Because if I got up here every Sunday and just talked about suffering for Jesus, that's a great way to just shrink your church down to about six. Your wife and your children. You know, it's like. Yeah, we, we like the, hey, the great verses. And yet, the Bible talks about a plan that God has to redeem us from our sin and from ourselves. And so today, we're going to look at the stages of our, of our redemption in Jesus. And we're going to start off with this section over here. And before I get going, it, no, I don't think anyone is going to believe that I painted these, and I assure you I did not. But Dave Wiley is a, is a tremendous artist. He's local. He's so local, he lives like four doors down from me. He's really, really local for me. And he's the one that did all of this. And uh, let's give it up for Dave. He's a great guy. Loves the Lord. Let's start off here about some things that, about Jesus, and that is his birth. The Old Testament tells us in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with you. Now I can only imagine that as they were reading this verse before Christ, that they were thinking, okay, a virgin's going to give birth? Nah. That's, that's like going to be like, spiritual or, or uh, it's going to be, you know, metaphorical. And yet God says, actually, it's going to be literal. Actually, that's really going to happen. And so it brings it into closer focus when they find out, yes, it really did happen. In Micah 5, 2, it says, but you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will rule over Israel, whose origin is from old and from ancient times. Again, I don't know if they understood the ramifications of Bethlehem being the birthplace of this one, but they understood something about something's going to happen in Bethlehem and there's going to be a ruler. I don't know if that means a king or a prince. They're trying to figure it out. But we see the birth of Christ as he had to be born of a virgin. He had to be born in Bethlehem because that's what was prophesied and God had preordained that to happen. And so we see that, that set, that onset, where the, the angels come and appear to the shepherds, the wise men come, and we see that as the very start. But then the next thing that we see about Jesus and our path to redemption is that we see his ministry. We see that Jesus was about the Father's business, and he wanted to do what God had called him to do. In Isaiah, the prophecy about Messiah would be, then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shall shout for joy. And then this artistic uh, version he, uh, or, or passage, he says, water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. 
He's saying when these things begin to happen, the Messiah is going to be in charge of that. The Messiah is going to bring healing, and he's going to bring the miraculous to the everyday, ordinary people and on a daily basis. There's going to be miracle after miracle, and it's going to be like a, a floodgate of water just rushing out into the wilderness, bringing a fruit, bringing the flowering, bringing the beauty of nature. He says that's what it's going to be like. And so we see here Jesus depicted as a shepherd because that's what shepherds do. They minister to people. And Jesus as our good shepherd is the one who brings to people health and strength and he cares for their souls. And that's what Jesus did in his ministry. And that's what he still continues to do today. And yet we see in the ministry of Jesus how he spoke to the rich and the poor, the haves and the have-nots. He spoke to those who were in the crowd and out of the crowd because to Jesus, there's no respecter of persons. Everyone is created in the image of God and he loves every person. You might be here today and you think, you know what? That's for other people. God really cares about other people, but I think he's kind of forgotten about me. I want to assure you today, Jesus has not forgotten about you. Even David in the Psalms says, you know, my father may leave me, my mother may leave me, but my God will never, ever leave me. Amen. And he knows exactly where you're at. He knows what you've been through, what you're going through, and he's here to help you. And that's the ministry that we see in Jesus. And yet, as Jesus is finalizing that about three years of ministry where he's helping people, setting them free, casting out demons, per performing miracle after miracle, we see then that he has to go to Jerusalem. And, and the Bible says he, he just sets himself to go because he knows his, his time has come. And it was in that, that change of mood that the disciples, I think, began to get, I want to use the word agitated, but that might not be the, rest, the right word. They began to see he is resolute to go to Jerusalem. And they're trying to interpret what he's doing. And then they get to the outskirts of Jerusalem. And this begins to take place. This is the scene that we see happens in Jesus' life, which was a tremendous turning point. We call out the triumphal entry. And here Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and the people are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. They're laying the palm leaves down. They're laying blankets down, coats down, whatever they could. He's riding in on a donkey. And he's, he's, he's coming into Jerusalem, the city, the city. And this is what people are thinking. They're thinking, it's going to happen. He's been three years ministering to people and getting people on his side. And now he's going to do it. Now he is going to establish his kingdom. The book of Zechariah tells us, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. In Isaiah 61, it says, The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. They're thinking this is it. This is what it's going to be about. 
This is when he's going to establish his kingdom. Yes, the Messiah has come, and finally he's going to push Rome back to Rome. We're not going to have to be under their control anymore. Man, this is great. This is the time period. Don't you know those 12 disciples were like, man, I'm glad I've been following him these three years. I'm going to have a good place in his government. He's going to make me a cabinet member. I'm going to be like maybe a judge or who knows. Man, this is going to pay off. All that turmoil we went through and people not liking us and all the traveling and all the walking, this is going to pay off, man. This is awesome. The triumphal entry. Finally, the Gentiles are going to be where they're supposed to be, you know, under our feet. We're going to be in charge again. That's what the Messiah is supposed to do. That's what we want him to do. This is the redemption that they were thinking about. The Messiah is going to redeem Israel. That means they're going to, we're going to be in charge. And here we go. This is it. And God could have done that. God could have established his kingdom right then and there, pushed the Romans back to Rome, done whatever he wanted to with the Gentiles. He could, he could have done all of that in that moment. And yet he didn't because he had a better plan. You and I go through things in life and we have a hope and we have a desire that things are going to get better and life's going to get easier. And God can do that with a snap of his finger. And yet we find that he has a better plan than to simply make our life good or make our life great. He has a better plan for the process in which your life is going to be great and your life is going to be powerful. Because truly God wants your life to be good, great, and powerful. But his plan is better than our plan. Their plan was, yes, do it right now. Kick everybody out. We're in charge and we're going to do it your way, God. And yet, the Bible tells us in Proverbs 16, 32, says, better a patient person than a warrior, one with self-control than one who takes a city. And I think that speaks to the heart of those that were there that day and those that are in this room today, starting with me. We want to be the people, we want to be the person who like, I'm in charge. I'm, I know what I'm doing. People respect me. I know what I'm doing. And yet we find ourselves in the inner person of ourselves going, well, if I'm supposed to be all that, why can't I control myself better? Why do I lose my temper? Why do I lash out? Why do I do that little deception there to get me advancement? And here Proverbs is saying it's better to have self-control than to take a city. It's better to be able to say, hey, I, I don't have to do those things. I don't have to give in to that. I can resist that temptation. And yet without Christ, every one of us fall into that temptation and say yes on num numerous times, time after time after time. We give in. You do. I do. Without Christ, we give in. And yet Christ says, I, I could set you up as a leader, but then you'd just fall from a higher place. 
Because your nature is not the nature of God, but it's the nature of this world. So God has a better plan. The biggest problem that we face is ourself. That sinful nature that we were born with, it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, that sinful nature that just leads us, pushes us to do what is wrong, to be selfish, to want it my way, to have it my way because I know best. I mean, I'm a Christian and everything, but am I talking to the right people today? Talking to myself, I don't know. The biggest problem we face is ourself. It's not Rome. It's not the government. It's not the Democrats and Republicans. It's not even the opinion media. It used to be news media, but it's different now. How does God solve this? They had an idea, but he had a better idea. And his idea takes us to this point and that is the crucifixion. God solved our biggest problem the only way it could be solved. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. There is no remission. There's no taking away of sin without the shedding of blood. The prophecy in Isaiah 53.3, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. See, this is what they had planned. This is, what they, this is not what they had in mind. Like, are you kidding me? You're supposed to ride in and like, Push everybody out that's bad. He said, yeah, that is what I'm doing. Because the bad is not from Rome or from Washington or from Atlanta or from wherever. The bad is right here. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to conquer the sinful nature inside of you so that you can be free. And so it's a crucifixion. Hebrews 10.10 says... We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Isn't that good news? God has made us holy through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ so that it is his sacrifice that pays the price for our sin. There was a man named D. James Kennedy. He was a pastor of a Presbyterian church down in Coral Gables, Florida. It's many years ago, came up with a, a method of evangelism, a system, if you will, and it focused around this question. It says, if you were to die today and you were to go to heaven and you were to stand at the gate of heaven and someone on the other side were to ask you, why should we let you into heaven? What would your answer be? Have you ever asked yourself that question? You ever thought about that? If that were to happen, if you were to die today and you were to go to heaven and somebody, an angel on the other side goes, hey, why should we let you in? What would your answer be? I heard someone recently talking about that and, and he made a, a comment and I'll, I'll repeat it to you. I'll just share it on with you. He said, if you ever answer that question in the first person, you're toast. Well, he didn't say toast, but I'd added that. <laughs> if, we, if we ever say... Uh, okay, why should, because I, 
we're in trouble. Because I was good. Because I had faith. Because I went to church. Because I did some good stuff. Because I'm not as bad as Mark Northcutt. If we answered in the first person, we're done. The only answer is him. Why should you let me in? Because of him. He said, I can be in there. He said, I can come. And so, therefore, that's why. Because of him. It was through the crucifixion. The holy took on my unholiness. The sinless took on our sin. The righteous took on our unrighteousness and took it to the cross and said, this is where it stays. And he died. Jesus did not faint on the cross. He died. All the way, done. The heart stopped beating. The lungs stopped working. He died. But he experienced death for you and I in our place. And, of course, we know what happens next. And that is, of course, big surprise, resurrection. He is alive. Amen? He is alive. The Bible says in Acts 2.24, but God raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Impossible. Because he was sinless. He had never done anything wrong. In Acts 26, 23, that the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Because Christ is alive, he takes our lives and all of the sin that we have committed and all of the sin that other people have inflicted on us, and he says, I set you free from that. I bring liberty to your life. I'm going to tell you a story real quickly about three people. Lisa and I, were, we met in Daytona Beach, and we were married there and started off ministry there, and it was in that church that I tell you this story. Three people and how their lives intersect. First was Jeannie. And then a married couple, Mike and Wanda. Now, Jeannie would show up every Sunday without fail. And when she came in, she was smiling. She had her Bible tucked under her arm. She was smiling. She greeted everyone, loved everyone. And when she would, we would come into the auditorium, she would sit on the edge near the aisle. Because when the worship started and the music started, she'd just kind of slip out of that aisle. and She'd start waving her hands and do a little dance, you know. She was about 4'11 and weighed about 70 pounds. But she was mighty. You didn't mess with her. She was a prayer warrior. And I didn't know her whole story. But as I got to know her a little bit and I heard other people talk about her, they said, before she was saved, she would tell you this. She said, I was bitter. I was mad at everybody. I cussed at everybody. I had a horrible life. But Jesus saved me. And now I love people. I didn't know it for many years, but she had a, a husband who was home in bed. Uh, just He couldn't get out of bed, and she nursed him and took care of him. And she had someone come in to minister to him while she went to church. That was basically the only time she ever left his side. But she just loved people. So one day on the way home from church, she decides to stop at Denny's and get some food, something to eat. And so she's, uh, 
she ate her food and she got her bill and she went and paid paid the for the for the ticket there the 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 food she paid for her food is what I'm trying to say and she came back and she left a tip on the counter and uh, she left also left a track and now some of you uh, younger people are a little confused it's like how do you leave a tip on the table back in the olden days <laughs> money was paper a track is just kind of a little uh, brochure, if you will, very small, but it's a very concise message about Christ and salvation and how a person can be saved. So she left her tip and a track. Her waitress was named Wanda. And Wanda did what she always did. She'd scoop up those tips and she'd put them in the pocket of the apron that she was wearing. And so she worked her shift and Wanda went home that night, not even knowing what she had in her pocket. But she was so tired at the end of the day, she came and, and she emptied her pockets on top of the television. Now, for those of you who are younger again, <laughs> today, televisions are this wide and they're about that deep. Um, back in the olden days, they were about this wide and about that deep. So she empties her pockets, puts the cash, the change, and the track on the TV. She goes to bed. What she didn't realize was that her husband, they had two children in the house. Her husband felt like a failure. He felt like, I'm done. I can't go on anymore. This isn't worth it. And he went into the room and he got his gun. And he came into the living room and sat down and put the gun to his head. And he thought, okay, I need to turn up the television set and put it up as loud as I can to just to kind of muffle. And he went over to the television to turn it on and turn it up, and he saw this piece of paper. And he grabbed that piece of paper, and he went back and sat down. And with a gun in one hand and a track in the other hand, he gave his life to Christ. And he was never the same. And he told his wife, he said, I've read this track, and I've given my life to Christ. I want you to read it. She read it and gave her life to Christ. They came to our church and became so involved, just loved God with all they had. He became the custodian there at the church, and they just served the Lord, and their kids were raised in that church. The miraculous power of Jesus Christ to forgive our lives. That's, that's the reason why he did all of this, that he came in the way he did. He ministered the way that he did, not like anyone else, but like a Messiah. He had a triumphal entry because he is King of Kings and he does put people in their place, but he does it in a way that's different than what they had planned and maybe what you have had planned for your life. Maybe you're thinking Jesus was going to clean me up from the outside and he's saying, I go deeper. I'm not so concerned with the outside. I'm not so concerned with all of that. I'm interested in your heart. Jesus is interested in your heart and that's what he changes. And he does it through a crucifixion. But he showed us once and for all, death has no power over him. He rose from the dead to make all of that possible, to make Jeannie's story possible, to make Wanda and Mike's story possible, and to make your story possible. And your story is just as powerful as a Christian than anyone else's. I'm going to bring this to a conclusion by 
reading out of Matthew 28, 18. The band's going to come up and we're going to have a time of worship and praise in just a moment. Matthew 28, 18, it says, Then Jesus came to them and said, this is after his resurrection, right before he ascends back up into heaven. He says to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. He says this to his disciples. He says, This is the kind of life that I want you to live. He didn't say, clean up your act and stop doing all those bad things. He said, get busy in my authority. He starts off with authority. All authority belongs to Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something. Jesus is more powerful than Washington, whoever the president is. He's more powerful than Moscow. He's more powerful than China. We don't have to worry about authority. All authority is God's. He lets certain things happen. And that because of his own wisdom and knowledge. But then next he says, I want you to go on an adventure. He says, go and make disciples. Uh, Maybe a better translation of that. He says, as you go, make disciples. As you're going through life, make disciples. He's saying, I want you to go. Don't sit, go. Don't wait, go. Don't just kind of wait for something to happen. He says, go make something happen. Life should be an adventure. I should be an adventure where we're going, God, where, where are you leading me? How, how am I going to get there? I don't know. But God, this is a great adventure, making disciples. He says, I want you to go. Are you on an adventure? Are you just doing time? God wants you to be on an adventure, not just doing time. Not just waking up doing the same thing every day. And lastly, he says, I'm giving you assurance. I'm with you always. I'll never leave you. You can't shake Jesus off. Hello? You can't shake him off. You know, you can give some people the cold shoulder and they get the picture. Jesus doesn't get that picture. He loves you. Maybe you've been giving him the cold shoulder. Maybe you've been saying, hey, this this isn't working out the way I thought. I've had had an image of you that I thought you were going to do this and you didn't do it. So, huh. You can't get rid of Jesus that easy. He loves you. He cares about you. He says, I'll always be with you. Through the difficulty, we find a clearer image of God. We see him more clearly through everything that we experience. My hope and prayer for you today is that you will see God more clearly than ever before. Because he has an awesome, awesome life planned for you. Maybe today you're, you're today, you're here and you're going like, you know what? This is all, this is all new, but I know God is speaking to my heart. Some, something's pulling on my heart right now. And I know I need to make a step toward God. I know I need to make a step toward this Savior. Because I'm not, I'm not in sync with him at all. I'm not in step with him at all. The Bible talks about this this word called repent. It means a turning away from our sin. And if God is speaking to your heart right now about getting right with him, walking in step with him, he's saying, are you willing to 
turn away from the things you've been doing? Are you willing to turn away from that? And you might be saying, well, I don't even know how to do that. How, how do I make that happen? Don't worry about making it happen. Just say, God, I want, I want to turn away from my sin. I want to turn away. But then the question is, what are you turning to? You can turn away from one sin and just hit another one. But Jesus says, turn away from your sin and come to me. I will heal your life. I will heal your heart and I will change you forever. The Bible describes it that he takes out of us this nature of sin and he puts within us his nature. He changes us from the inside out. That's what he wants to do for you today. Will you pray with me? Let's pray.